Sat Nam, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Shakti Waves Radio with your host, yours truly, Sonia Avramovic, or as I like to call myself in my native tongue, Sonia Avramovic. You are listening to an interview with my really dear friend, Annie Quinlan, who just started behavioral consultancy, which is so damn cool. We're going to learn about what all of that is because I didn't know until about a minute ago, and it is called Salient. I'm so excited about what that means. Her and I did our university degrees together. We both got degrees in business and psychology. She did finance. I did marketing. We were like the dynamic duo. It was great. And she's also a yoga teacher and she's a blogger. She's such a brilliant writer and she has so much wisdom to share. So I'm so excited to get into this with you. Let's broadcast some epic dives into greatness with my friend, Maddie. I'm so excited to be with you and to be chatting about this stuff. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go back and forth with the questions. We're in London right now, sitting yes. in your beautiful Kensington apartment. We just had so much tea, <laughs> a lot of tea. It's perfect. We're sitting on the ground because we're yoga teachers. We're sitting on your meditation cushion. And I want to know like, what has brought you here in the last couple years? Are you willing to share your whole kind of career arc since we left university? Yeah. So out of university, when we were done with that... I went almost directly into finance. I worked in stock-based compensation initially. And then after that, I worked in commodities trading. So as a risk analyst and clearing analyst for uh, commodities exchange energy, because Alberta and we do energy. So I spent three years there and I did my CFA during that time as well. So I was pretty by the book finance. Psychology didn't take more of a seat than a personal interest and passion and, you know, my own psychological things, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point as we all have. But at that point, I sort of identified that there was more that I was interested in bringing in from a psychology perspective and learned about a thing called behavioral finance. And that was kind of a game changer for me because it sort of saw my worlds collide. So why do people do what they do, but also like why do markets behave the way that they behave and entire economic systems and how it's all basically human irrationality manifesting itself in the world. I decided that I needed to do a master's degree in that to get a better picture of where exactly I wanted to show up in that space. And so I planned to apply to all these schools and do my master's. And at the same time, because I knew that this would be kind of a transition for me into a new chapter, I thought it was also a really good time to go to Bali and do my yoga teacher training. So when I knew that I was going to be landing in London at London School of Economics and doing my master's here, that was when I was like, okay, well, let's line up to do the yoga teacher training in between because I'll be leaving my corporate job. I'll be making this giant dive life shift. What better time to do all of the things? And so I spent five weeks in Bali with Ian Finn and Blissology doing my yoga teacher training. It really opened up a lot for me personally doing that was probably one of the best things that I ever, ever did. And then I spent a lot of time traveling solo after that and then landed in London to do this master's, which is where I've been for the last 13 months. Oh, girl, I love the marriage of the finance and the psychology. And I know we talked about that a lot when we were in university together. And I actually, if I wasn't doing marketing, I would have done finance too. So we had a lot in common back then. But I love that you went on one edge of the spectrum. And then you went into five weeks in Bali, the most <laughs> spiritual place on the planet. 
And then yoga teacher training, and you were also helping build coral reefs. And then you also started blogging at that same time and sharing the experience. So I'm really seeing this blending of like masculine, feminine, yin yang, what we've been discussing before the episode started of like these two extremes that you hold so well. And now I want to know, like, what does that mean? How does that manifest in Salient? I think what's the most exciting for me about starting a company is, for lack of a better word, the control around what I get to create and what my partners and I get to stand for and what we value and building that into something that I think is a diversion from what anybody would consider a typical consultancy. So really kind of bridging that gap between what do we like hold true in academia? What do we bring from the insights in research and doing rigorous experimentation and trying to figure out what it is, the way that people behave, and then translating that into business and into the world and for organizations and nonprofits and for anybody that has a stake in what behavior influences. So I think that that is a really important gap that's been neglected, I think, so far in a lot of consulting up until much more recently, because I don't think that there's a cookie cutter approach to any problem, if it's a business problem or anything else. You can't just apply a framework to anything and have it succeed. I think you have to have a better handle on what is the actual problem. And like, there's a really taking baseline measures and figuring out, you know, Where is the stemming from? How can we potentially intervene on it? And how can we measure if we're being successful or not, Mm -hmm. rather than just throwing solutions at problems without any indication that that's going to be successful? Mm -hmm. For Salient, for us, that's kind of our pitch. That's kind of our cornerstone is bringing what we know about the way that people behave and the way that they show up and how we can think about changing that behavior or making people better off than they were before whether that's a business context or not, that's our approach. And that's the way that we want to bring behavioral science to industry. Mm. So as a baseline, what is behavioral science? (laughs) And is it like behavioral economics and finance? Like unpack that for me. Great question. I ask myself this more than I care to admit. What is behavioral science? Because it's very broad in a lot of ways. So it's essentially the study of the way that people behave. It has its roots in economics and psychology. So it's kind of this happy marriage. And essentially the foundation of it is we expect in economics that a rational actor exists so that people have all of the information and that they make rational utility maximizing decisions. So they'll always do the thing that will serve them the best. But all economic theory basically goes out the window when you observe the way that people actually behave. So people (laughs) behave irrationally in many, many of their decisions. So these kind of mental shortcuts that people have are really beneficial in our day-to-day lives. So we have to be able to make decisions quickly. We can't analyze cost benefit of every decision that we make in a day. We make 35,000 decisions in a day. Mm -hmm. And so nobody has time to really think all of those through. So we're basically running on what people call system one, which is like that automatic side that you allow to make decisions because they don't matter in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways, right? So these are these kind of insignificant things that are just very habitual and natural. And you take these shortcuts mentally and use heuristics, but that can also lead to bias because over time, we're going to be defaulting to certain mental behaviors. Mm -hmm. And so while beneficial in a lot of ways and allow us to get through our days, they also have inherent issues. So things like 
impatience or present bias is the preference to consume now rather than later. So we're not putting off consumption that has impacts for savings behavior, obviously. Mm -hmm. So these are the kinds of things that behavioral science tries to understand Mm -hmm. is a way that these show up and then offer solutions and how we can help people make better decisions. Wow. Well, that sounds like really surprisingly similar to, because obviously there's overlap in so many industries, but especially in all of psychology. But since a lot of my work was being a consumer researcher for a year and a half and working in a big digital agency, like my job was to literally understand a customer inside and out. What are their motivations? What are their behaviors? What do we need to understand about them? What problems are we fixing? What are we delighting them? When are we surprising them? When are we making them have a painful, angry experience? And a lot of that research was really just like human understanding, understanding customers and their motivations. And it sounds really similar to consumer psychology. Is there something that's like uniquely different? Is it just like more of a macro scale or? It's funny that you say that because one of my business partners, his background is in market research and consumer experience. And that's a huge, huge application for behavioral science. I would say exactly. Behavioral science is sort of this overarching area. And then you have these different arms. So you could put it into market research. You do behavioral finance when you're talking about trading behavior and biases all kinds of different like health behaviors and applications in terms of like sustainability and environment. So like these are all these kind of different arms that behavioral science really can be applicable to. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your dissertation because you're about mm-hmm. to complete your master's. Tell us about that. Yes, that's coming due in about six weeks and has been a good bit of blood, sweat and tears. My dissertation, my thesis is about meditation and the impact of mindfulness meditation on temporal discounting. Temporal discounting being sort of this present bias that I talk about where you're preferring immediate consumption over a delayed reward. And so basically what I have done is I've done an experiment in the behavioral research lab and had people either listening to a meditation track or to jazz music or to kind of a neutral recording about like, I think Beatles or something like that, just like a very neutral sort of recording. And then following the recording, they take a choice task where they're deciding between say $20 today or $32 in six days. And they make that decision and then they make another one. So it's like, okay, is it $48 today or $73 tomorrow. So it's, it's these different amounts of money over these different delays of time. Mm-hmm. And by measuring that, we can get an implicit subjective discount rate for someone's preferences. And so my hypothesis has been that if somebody's meditated first, that they will be more likely to delay gratification, mm. that they'll choose a larger amount of money later. And so their discount rate will be lower. Mm-hmm. We're starting to crunch the numbers and I'm finding some really surprising opposite results that Mm -hmm. I didn't expect. So we're still kind of working through what the results will be. But I think regardless, the reason that it's an important piece of research is for a couple of reasons. So the research on mindfulness and meditation is vast. Mm -hmm. It's also relatively new. Yeah. considering the timeline of all research. So it's really been in the last few decades that this has come and really exploded. But it also has come under quite a bit of criticism for its methodologies and for the definitions that it uses. So 
meditation and mindfulness are both pretty broad terms when you mm-hmm. think about how do you robustly and controlled do a study about something that doesn't have really great definition in its borders. So like, what is meditation? What is mindfulness? There's a lot of different ways that you can interpret that. And so the literature hasn't necessarily been focused on defining that well. And there's also been some methodological criticisms of mindfulness meditation research in general. Mm -hmm. So the call from previous research has really been to do more robust study. And so satisfying the gap in that literature is something that was really important to me Mm -hmm. when I approached this project, because I think that it's important to do research rigorously and robustly. Because otherwise, no matter what your result is, it's not reliable. And I think that something like meditation is at risk of that. Because if you do all these studies, oh, meditation is great for this, and it's great for this, and it has all of these benefits. But if it benefits everything, does it really benefit anything? To me, it was important, even if I find that this does not impact temporal discounting whatsoever, at least we know then that it doesn't work, right? And we've done it in a controlled way. Because it's as important to know what something doesn't work for as something that it does. So I think positive result versus a neutral versus a negative result, all of them will add to that literature. And Mm -hmm. and that was really the most interesting, most important thing to me. Wow. It's been a while since I thought in terms of a lot of that level of research rigor. Mm. And I just love the service that you're doing and expanding the literature and helping those, some of those definitions. And it's so interesting as yoga teachers and as a community yoga teacher for me, to even think about like meditation being so defined and constrained because it's essentially like this experience of profound infinity, (laughs) right? And just like infinite capability and like, what can't it do? But at the same time, like, yeah, maybe it can't help you be more risk averse. (laughs) right? Like maybe that's the thing it can't do. Okay, great. Like let's define it and let's be clear. And like, what does help with that? So that's just helpful for people and for the world. I just thought, I'm like, oh, that's a really interesting hypothesis because based on that, you would assume that most yogis and yoga teachers would have like the most savings yeah, yeah. or it would be like the most financially robust. And I'm like, wait a minute, is like Don't. Warren Buffett, like yeah. just like really good at meditation, yeah. right? So it's, it's like, there's correlation there, but I was like, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. To totally like turn the tides or to talk about like making risky choices and, mm-hmm. you know, the nature of risk in our decision making. Why don't you talk to me a little bit about actually moving to London and what you would do if you had a billion dollars? You know, mm-hmm. a billion dollars is the number now that you'd need to have in order yeah. to never think about money again. Right. Yeah. Right. It's not a million dollars anymore because you live in <laughs> London. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Can't even buy a flat. No. So... Tell us about that. Like you thought about what you'd be doing when you had a billion dollars and you had some epiphanies and you made some big decisions. Yeah. I mean, I think I always thought for me when someone was like, oh, if if you never had to work or you didn't have to think about money or, or anything like that, you know, you won the lottery is the question, right? What would you do? And my answer was always really nerdy, but I was like, I'd go to school. I'd go to school forever. I'd keep learning forever. I would just do degrees and learn all of the things because there was so much in the world to learn. And then, you know, maybe I'd consult or like teach or become a professor or whatever. But then at some point, it occurred to me as I was doing it, that you don't have to wait for those things to come. You can make those things happen yourself. You just have to kind of fearlessly endure and sort of just go. 
that was insane to me. I was like, of course I can go and do these things and I can have these experiences. And yeah, that was, I think the fearlessness is something that you really just have to try and harness in order to make those things happen because it makes you limitless. It opens everything up to you when you're like, I don't need to wait. I can do this now. And I think that's been a big thing for me, just being able to say, well, yeah, just go do it. Like, why not? Right. Mm -hmm. Like you don't have to wait for anybody else to give you permission. You don't have to wait for the perfect time. That time isn't coming. Mm -hmm. The perfect time is not coming. The billion dollars, the billion dollars ain't coming (laughs) as far as I can tell yet, but you don't have to wait for these things. Like you can make your own life and you don't have to wait. So risk is a subjective measure, right? Like what's risky to you is risky to somebody else to define yourself by that. I think is limiting, but I also identify that it's taken a long time for me to get there. And that it takes a very long time to get to that point where you feel like you are secure enough or confident enough in who you are and what you want to be able to do that. Like that fearless, that kind of courage to do these types of things. It doesn't just exist or happen. I think you have to go through a lot of trial. Mm -hmm. And you often, I think, have to go through a lot of garbage in order to get to the point where you're like, oh, okay, I have only got me right? Like it's me and me. And no matter what your amazing network of human connection and the people around you and who you surround yourself with, that aside, at the end of the day, you really have to be profoundly comfortable with who you are and what you want to be doing. And that I think is the ultimate game changer is feeling like, Mm. all right, it's me. And that's where the bravery can always come from. That's where it always comes from. Oh, Well, you talked about fearlessness and knowing yourself. And from that place, you can choose bravery. What made you aware of that in life? Tell us about those experiences. Uh, Therapy. (laughs) Well, for me, the bravery and the vulnerability came together. But it was after a very long period of really lacking in that area. So for me, I've struggled with anorexia for a very long time pretty much all of my 20s. And that was something that was shrouded in all secrecy for ages and ages. And it's one of those secrets that is secret to no one when they know you. And we talked about this a little bit earlier as well. But coming to a point where I was forced to face that and go into recovery and start to tease apart where that fear comes from, and that'll be different for every person that goes through something like that. And then coming forward with that to basically the rest of the world and Mm -hmm. telling everybody about it, that was the most terrifying thing that I've ever done. Mm -hmm. That was the most terrifying thing. And happily, it was also the greatest outpouring of love that I've ever experienced in one hit. (laughs) And that's where the bravery to be vulnerable, I think, came from was in the arms of that experience. But working through that and being honest about that is very difficult. And I think with any mental illness, it's like you're fighting you. (laughs) So the same you that is all that you've got is actively Mm -hmm. sort of fighting against what's going to help you and be healthy. And so that's been a heck of a journey and one that I'm still going through every day. But I think being able to show up and talk about that 
it makes it worth going through because I think that there's such a relatedness between people that you can find in being able to open that up and share that. Mm, Thank you for sharing it. Are you willing to share some more? Because I can share my experience of it. My experience was we went to university together. We were involved in all these student clubs. We were really close. And then the fact that we did our psychology degree together and we learned, like we literally did abnormal psychology together. Like we learned about eating disorders and how to define them and how to diagnose them and all of that together. And we were having these conversations about them. And there was just a point where it was just so deeply heartbreaking and difficult to not speak about it with you. And there was also like this deep one fear within me that we just wouldn't be able to have that type of conversation without it just ruining our friendship or I wasn't brave enough to have it at that point in time in my own development and experience. And I was also really afraid that it would drive us apart. And so I just kind of did the passive thing and let us fade out of each other's lives. And then one day, you know, we were still on social media together because of course, and you posted this blog post that was so profound because you have so much capacity and wisdom and brilliance. It was just strange to not talk about it with you because I've always wanted to talk about it with you because you're the person I wanted to talk about all things psychology (laughs) with. And you were so vulnerable and so real. And it was really an apology letter. And it was so beautiful. And I felt like you'd written it exactly for me. And I knew you wrote it for everyone in your life and for yourself. And I'd love for you to describe like what actually brought you to that. And what was that experience like for you? That took a while to come to. So I had been in recovery for probably six months at the time where I started writing that. And it was something that I came back to multiple, multiple times. It didn't just kind of come out in one go because it was a lot for me to kind of process as I was writing it. So I would get very overwhelmed and upset and then I'd kind of have to leave it for a little while and come back to it. And then when I finished it, I sent it to my psychologist first and I said, do you think that I should like post this? Do you think I should put this up? Like, I think it might be helpful to somebody. And she was like, this is everything that, you know, is in you. And if you feel comfortable, I think that you you should. So I was sitting in my living room and I had it ready to go and I had it ready to post. And I had told my mom and my dad as well, but my mom was over at my place with my dog and I was like, I'm going to do it. And so I pressed publish and it went out and I closed my laptop and I turned my phone off and I went and walked the dog and was, you know, basically shaking because it was, it was like the most insane sort of like vulnerability that I think I've ever experienced. My brand is having it together and keeping it together and having everything go well. Mm -hmm. And this was like chopping that all to pieces being like, Mm. do not have it together. So I went for a very long walk. And by the time I came back, I didn't really intend to look at the sort of like the comments or anything on it online initially, but my phone, when I got back, it had blown up. Like it had just, it was this insane, it was like the waterfalls because I think that what holds us back from that human connection is this wall of lack of vulnerability and everybody is holding so much love for you. Everybody is ready to give it to you. They just need permission. Mm -hmm. And when you give that permission by being vulnerable and sharing, the floodgates just open and they're ready. The love was all there. It was all waiting 
to flow out, but you had to invite it in. Mm. I've also had this referred to since then as being invited to the Maddie party or being invited to the Sonia party or like you just, you need to ask people into your life and into your space. So that was profoundly impactful to me in my recovery was the, was the support that followed that. It's just, I'll have a moment (laughs) not to joke about it, but honestly, I need a moment. The palpability of you just describing that and that like floodgate, I could feel that. And I felt it. It was just, I think the most profound thing I've ever read from like another person, definitely someone that I knew, but someone that I cared about so deeply, like to have loved you so much that I actually couldn't like speak to you because I knew that this was the thing we needed to speak about. And for you to invite people in, in that profound of a way, like you, you opened the door, like you invited that love. And of course it was there for you. And that's just so beautiful. Like if that's not a message for other people with anorexia or any sort of eating disorder or any sort of anything like mental illness, if you've done something wrong, like anything that is seriously like life affirming, (laughs) that type of level of action, like Brene Brown would have something to say about you, (laughs) my friend. What happened next? I mean, I guess from that point, it became so much more important to me to try and be well. And what ended up coming together from that, I mean, not specifically that, but definitely that had a hand in it, was the ability then to kind of move forward. And like, I never would have gone and done my yoga teacher training. I never would have ended up here in London doing this if I had not at some point stopped the trajectory that I was on, Mm -hmm. which is not to say that there have not been setbacks and step backs and relapse because that would be untrue to say that everything's been sunshine and daisies since then but it opened up the conversation which meant that even in the struggly times and like the ugly stuff that comes after that the dialogue is there with the people that I care about and that care about me and the willingness to ask for help and get help when I need it that's the biggest difference I definitely, from that point, it facilitated moving towards pursuing these dreams that I've had and making them a reality. And it's not easy and it doesn't continue to be easy. And I would be overselling it if I was saying like, and then everything was perfect. It's (laughs) a constant sort of like back and forth. And I think with any mental illness or physical illness, it's going to be kind of a constant step forward. Sometimes you step back, sometimes you step sideways, but being honest about it and knowing that there are people that you can go to and that there are resources that you have no matter what or where you are and that type of thing. Like that's a huge difference once you've kind of like come out about that and Mm -hmm. talked to at least anybody about it. Like the weight that comes off when Mm -hmm. you've shared that secrets are exhausting. It's so detrimental and it takes up so much brain space. We're talking about like cognitive psychology we're talking about behavioral economics and it's like we all have a very limited brain space it's why we have these mental shortcuts and then if you overload that with things like keeping sickness secret or struggling in silence that's so much more than your human brain can handle effectively and it's limiting and I think the scariest thing to me when I was going through it was 
is going to impact me cognitively. Like this is going to change my brain and like, I'm not willing to sacrifice my brain for this. And Mm. that should that have been my number one concern? I don't know. Like your physical health is probably Mm. something that many people would consider more important, but we all have to have something that is our why. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was very much like, I'm not willing to let this impact the way that I think and the way that I feel. Wow. (laughs) I'm just in awe of you. Like the level of vulnerability and bravery and also the vulnerability and bravery of like opening that conversation and then knowing that that is now open. That is creating a hell of a lot of accountability in your world to have other people that love you be able to stand for you and your health and wellness for your brain, for your dreams. And what I hear it made available for you is like everything else that you wanted for yourself. Like you're now living your billionaire lifestyle, (laughs) right? Like who, who says like you did need to you know, risk reward, you're in finance, like you took the greatest risk ever by sharing that and by even choosing recovery. And the reward, it sounds like has been pretty paramount for you that you're here and the love that you created. And even that we're feeling right now is really impeccable. Like this wasn't possible if you wouldn't have made that decision, we wouldn't be here having this podcast. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. What I really hear, especially is like, at one point, you just kind of chose yourself in your life. I'm just so damn grateful, mm-hmm. right? Because the world wouldn't know that like meditation doesn't help you make sure <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this is the why. This is the why. I just love your eternal pursuit of like, like you're so erudite. Oh, I love that I just got to use that word, right? Oh, let's have an orgasm for erudite, for intellect, for the expansion of the literature, the literature people. I used to always say as a consumer researcher that no one knows what I know until I know it. Yeah, it made me so happy. Yes. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Because I personally love how expansive and multidimensional you are. Like I've always talked to you about the fact that you were a cheerleader and also in finance, that you were like in psychology and like love to give bear hugs. Like it's just all of these things that you are. Let's just talk about all of it. I struggle sometimes with this, but I was talking to my partner about this the other day. But I think that having multiple dimensions serve each other. So I don't think I would be as great of an anything without being as great of a opposite thing. I don't think I'd be able to do the type of yoga teaching that I can do without a nod to the analytical side of my brain, because then maybe that supports the alignment side of yoga. Or Mm. I don't know if I could build the kind of business that I would really want to build without a psychology background with like, a real care for what humans go through or my love of animals. I don't think that I'd be able to have the same approach to anything that I do without the empathy that comes with that. So I think that while it doesn't always make sense, all of the kind of random sort of pieces of my personality or the things that I like to do, I think they serve each other. I don't think I'd be as good at anything if I didn't do them all. There is a little bit of a head tilt that you get when you tell people like, oh, I do this and oh, but I also do this. And I, I was a cheerleader for a while as well. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? I'm like, well, you know. <laughs> I think that's always been my favorite part of you. And 
honestly, it's just my favorite thing about a lot of people. Like, it's just fascinating. You're fascinating. It's multidimensional. It's not typical. It's not in a box. And that doesn't mean that anyone that just loves finance alone and that's it. That's like their bread and butter. We also know a guy like that. He's great. (laughs) Passion is passion is passion. Yeah. And I've heard it be termed, like, I'm not sure if like there's a TED Talk called Multipotentialites. And Marie Forleo talks about being a multi-passionate person or multi-passionate entrepreneur. Today, I was talking to a life coach here in um, London, who, of course, I met in a cafe and I'm now best friends with. Yes. But she was telling me about it. I think it's called multi-hyphens, like where you're multi-hyphenated as a person, like the way that you would describe yourself is like, yes, like finance analyst and psychologist and explorer and Yorkie lover and all of these hyphen, hyphen, hyphens. And there's so much freedom in that. And there's also integration. And I really identify with that. Like I'm so gosh dang multi-passionate, like heck yeah. Yeah. And I love it. I love that you own it because it gives other people that are the same way the ability to own it. Because a lot of the time in society, I think it's pretty common that most people expect for you to have the one thing or the one purpose. And what I see is a lot of the people that I know or I'm attracted to have multiple. Yeah. What's that like for you? Have you ever noticed that? Or that you can't, or that you can't be all things or yeah. that you have to be this way. If you, you know, you like math, so you have to do this thing or whatever. Although I suppose the struggle with it is trying to figure out your LinkedIn tagline, which I struggle with. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? I think actually, I think I've updated it because we've launched the company. I think it's director and co-founder at Salient behavioral scientist, yoga teacher. I've kept it to three former cheerleader and animal lover and those things. They're all, you know, read between the lines. You have to scroll down a little bit further for that part. (laughs) You might have to send me an email to get all those details. Some intimacy is required. Oh, that's such an interesting conversation. It's a really random question, which purely from my curiosity. Do you think there's actually anything connected to anorexia and having so much that defines you like so much that you want to be in the world do you see any relationship with that so a couple of things with that I think part of it is this drive to do more and that's where I need to check myself and where this multi-dimensional sort of like overachieving addiction that I have and that is typical of people that suffer with anorexia it's common. I shouldn't say typical. It's it. Yeah. So it, it's seen. There's that balance. It's like, how far are you willing to push yourself burning the candle at both ends and trying to be all things to all people and show up in the world? That's a deeply rooted mm. thing. And I think those two things are comorbid. At the same time, part of what makes recovery really difficult is being able to visualize yourself without the eating disorder who am I without this? This makes me special. And the identification of all of those other awesome things that you are and that you have and that you value, those sustain, regardless of whether you have a special snowflake eating disorder or not, you are those things. And those things don't go away when you are healthy. Mm. It doesn't make you less worthy if you don't have I mean, sort of on the side of all of these other accomplishments. In fact, mm-hmm. it's probably holding you back from how great those things could be. Mm-hmm. Imagine the things that you're doing that are great about you. If you had the energy or this mental space that's being taken up by this obsession or this mental illness that you're struggling with, 
imagine the brain space that you have, what could those accomplishments and those dreams become without that holding back? So it's, it's not adding mm. actually, it's detracting. So making that mental shift between, no, this is part of my arsenal. This is, this is part of what makes me special and mm. being like, no, no, it's all of these other things mm. that make you special. That's a big gap to leap across in recovery. Wow. So I'm just starting to understand about how much like interrelatedness there is with identity and who you are and how you define yourself and anorexia. And obviously with a lot of, well, not obviously, most people don't know that unless they study (laughs) psychology or have friends that talk about this or listen to this podcast. But oftentimes with psychology, with any sort of mental illness, it's very important to identify that that is not actually who that person is. Like they are not depression or they are not depressed they have depression Mm -hmm. something that they have it's not all that they are like people are people I experience them as souls or brains or bodies and they are worthy and impeccable and beautiful in and of themselves and you know you don't say that someone is a heart attack after they've had a heart attack (laughs) you do say that they're depressed but it's something that we talk about a lot like it's not like you are schizophrenic it's you have schizophrenia Mm. And it sounds like that distinction in anorexia might be particularly difficult. And what you're saying is that actually identifying with all of those positive, other multi-beautiful aspects of who you are, that's important. And that it does take a lot to be able to just think about yourself that way. Because it's about letting go of like the specialness that anorexia or whatever disease Mm -hmm. or whatever that might be. It might be your trauma. For me, it's trauma, right? Mm -hmm. If I wasn't a war kid, who the hell would I be? Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't really care about that because it just holds me back. It actually holds me back from connection and my own potential to just be connected to that trauma. And who would I be without my trauma? I'd be a hell of a lot more powerful, more loving, more compassionate, all of me. And that's what I'm working towards. So you could put anything in that space. And thank you for sharing that. Is there a message that you particularly you want to give people with eating disorders? Oh, that's that's a big question. At its most like basic, it's like, just tell someone and don't wait until you think you're sick enough. Because if it's even a question to you, Mm -hmm. if you even have to think, am I sick enough? You're sick enough. Just tell someone because it's so easy to be like, oh, okay, well, I'll wait until then. I'll wait until then. I'll put it off. I'll put it off. One day it'll be enough and I'll be thin enough or whatever enough. And then I can be happy. Mm -hmm. And one day I'll wake up and I'll be happy in my body. One day I'll be happy with my level of control or whatever it is. And similar to what we were talking about before, the day is not coming. That day, that revolutionary day that you wake up and you're happy with your body, like that, that day will not come. And nobody's winning at their eating disorder. The people that are winning at their eating disorder are dead. That's it. Like you don't wait until you think you're sick enough to tell someone it'll be the best thing is to just open it up. You know, there's several moments on this podcast where I have this deep knowing that what someone just said just saved lives. Thanks for that. I could just cry. Like, it's just so profound. I'm so grateful for you and your bravery to share that and to know that for myself for creating this medium, like where even if one person heard it and my chair with someone else, like that's so valuable. Oh, Maddie Lou, what else do you want to talk about? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not on that note. <laughs> we were going to talk about business. It was like, yeah, we can no, talk no, about no, no, no. Well, I just think that for me, business is all about like people, like yes. people and their money. And then they get to buy homes and have their kids in that home. Like it's all about people to me. I just love people. One of my really good life coach friends, Jen Lenz, it's Jen Lenz. Check her out. She's the best. All of her brand is it's Jen Lenz because she's the best. 
And she told me, she's like, you're so clearly committed to people. And she's like, and where you're going is family. And I'm like, oh, girlfriend, like she just summed up my whole existence. (laughs) I want to know, like, what is that spark for you? What is that thing that really drives you forward? It's similar to you knowing like what makes people tick and why people do things and the insight into that just like drives me nuts. Like I gotta know <laughs> and I wanna and I wanna experiment too. Like I, I love the idea of like, well, will this change this? Like, well, if I change this very if I get people to meditate, will it get people to do this? Like if I make the sign this color, will it make people pay attention? Like those kinds of Tests, I love it. I love it. I want to understand it. I want to understand why people do what they do. But then I also want to help people cross the intention behavior gap. So we have nothing but great intentions and knowing what's good for us and knowing what will drive things forward in personal, in business, whatever it is. But the gap between intention and behavior is huge. Mm. Making things actually happen, how do we cross that? So I think trying to figure out the best ways to get people to do what's going to make them happier. Mm -hmm. Because we all know that these things, we should do them. They're going to make me happy. I want to do this. Why am I not getting there? I know I want to have a great life and, and I know that I want to take care of myself, but like I can't get out of this pattern that I've created, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. That's what behavioral science is to me. That's, that's why. Do you know what works for you to get you out of the intention and behavior gap? (laughs) Uh, Structure, routine, getting into a good habit and routine is pretty important for me. Being without structure is really problematic for me. Yeah. It kind of throws everything out of whack. Accountability, I think. So like commitment devices is what we would call that in behavioral science. So Mm. if I tell you that I'm going to meet you, to go to the store and buy my groceries, then I know that I'm going to go do it because you're meeting me there. That's a commitment device. And that will depend on the person, right? So like that might not speak to some people if they don't actually, if they're not that fussed about what someone else thinks about them or whether they show up for someone, then that's not going to be the Mm -hmm. type of behavioral nudge that is going to work for them. It's knowing enough about generalizations about how we can get most people to do things. But there is also that element of when you're dealing with human beings and behavior, you know that you're never going to paint everyone with the same brush. You're never going to have success with everyone mm-hmm. um, because everybody's individual and everybody has different things that make them tick. Oh, heck yeah, girl. It's so interesting. Have you ever done Strengths Finder? No. It's one of these tests where you figure out essentially like what your core strengths are and how they might interact together and then which types of people it would be helpful for you to work on. So it's really helpful for teams. And I just did my own because I was fascinated. I love tests and all yes. that kind of stuff. Like we were talking about psychology and horoscopes and all of that stuff. And even though as a coach, like I love all of that because it helps people maybe understand themselves better or some of their patterns better or learn why they do something and why their dad does something else. Yeah. Like it can bring people together and help bridge gaps in understanding in self and others. But it can also be kind of constraining. Like don't just think that you are only an ENFJ. <laughs> like yeah. You are not only your, your Myers-Briggs or your horoscope, but it can also help you. Like it's really served me. So whatever works. A lot of my experience in life has been about learning about what my strengths are and then really leveraging them. 
So what I learned about my strengths finder is that I really look for like patterns and universality and I see like interconnectedness and in everything. So that's like one of my skills. And I also start my day at zero. So FOMO is pretty normal for me, or at least like I need to be productive and I need to feel like I accomplished something. And sometimes that literally just looks like doing a yoga class and having a matcha latte. And that can be my definition of success. And it varies, but my day starts at zero and then I like to get up to a hundred And that's very different from people who don't wake up that way. So it really helps me understand myself. And it's also a strength, right? I can leverage that to produce a lot for myself and for others. And one of mine is interconnectedness. And the reason why I brought all of this up is I see so much interconnectedness between what you're doing and between coaching. Because like that gap between like intention and action or outcome is exactly what we do in coaching. Like, it's all about like, okay, where are you at? And where do you want to be? Do you Mm -hmm. even need to define what that is? Like, maybe you need to explore that first and define it and make it measurable. And then it's about working to get there. And a lot of that is just developing new behaviors, new habits, creating accountability, creating clear commitments and creating that. Like a lot of like a commitment structure is what I end every call with my clients with. It's like, how are you actually going to make sure that that happens? Mm -hmm. Not just like say it's going to happen, but not be accountable to yourself or say you're going to do it with your husband, but then your husband never holds you to it. Yeah. Like what's actually going to make a difference. And it sounds like you're actually really impacted by making a difference by having the results be different. What do you think about that? That's kind of like the beauty of behavioral science is that it's really, it's in everything. And once you've done it, you can't really unsee it either. Mm -hmm. You kind of, you just pick it up everywhere and you're like, oh yes, I see, I see. Which I'm sure is the same with you when you go and you coach and and you see things in people and you can read them like a book immediately because of your experience. But I think one of the most kind of profound learnings that I have taken from my master's in behavioral science, and this is from Professor Paul Dovin, is that no matter how much you know about it, you can't be immune from it. Mm. So I can know about all of these pitfalls Mm-hmm. in behavior and biases and all of this, it's still going to happen to me. I still have them. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It, I can see them coming and just wash right by. I'm like, yep, I'm engaging in this bias. I'm engaging in this. I can't turn it off because I'm still a human. So it doesn't matter how much you know about it. You're still as susceptible to it as anyone else. Yeah. Oh girl, that's so meta. That's kind of like how so <laughs> many of us that have psych degrees usually have either mental illness that we're struggling with or family members. And just because I know about it, like learning about depression did not help me with my depression. Right. Right. It's like one does not beget the other sometimes. If anything, I kind of thought I had so many other mental illnesses. Like, <laughs> you know how we do that? Like the textbook, the yeah. textbook <laughs> diagnosis. You read the DSM and you're like, oh no, <laughs> don't open the DSM. If anyone <laughs> I just don't do it to yourself. There's a new one now. Since I know there is school. a new one. How old don't do tell we me. feel there's a I think there's a DSM-5 now. Yes. We studied under the DSM-4. I'm like, we're not that old to be, like, looking back on... It's good. Uh, I mean, it's oh, back in the days of DSM-4. <laughs> but I think it's actually just on a completely random tangent about mental health and mental illnesses. I think that they've made some really big improvements in how they diagnose the spectrums under which they have criteria. Because I think that people not believing that they're sick enough or that they can get help because they don't fall into a box yes. that's diagnosable historically. So I think that they've actually done a really great job in, in moving that forward than not having the really strict diagnostic criteria. So that's just like my little plug about like, 
inclusive mental health. <laughs> I love it. Inclusive. We talked about that a lot in university. I was like, I would always raise my hand. I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> what about someone who's just really sad for a week? Like they still need help too. Like right. where, and especially when you start talking about insurance and then, Ooh, girl, like gets into this whole world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, essentially what we're trying to say is if you need help or support, there's support for you. You don't need to be fully diagnosable. You don't need to, you fall somewhere on the spectrum and reach out. And I'm actually going to be writing, it's going to be up by the time this is posted, but how to find a therapist, like things to look for when you're picking a therapist, some resources to go to, and then also like how to pick a coach and what's the difference. And when do you have both? When do you have one? Just so people know, because they often don't know the distinction between like what is therapy and what is coaching. So I'm going to write a blog post because people ask me all the time. They're like, how do I pick a therapist? What what kind of therapist do you like? I'm like, well, there's so many kinds. Yeah, There's literally so many kinds. There's so many different theories to how the brain works and what people need. And that's beautiful because different people need different things. Yeah. Because they're different. So on that note, my last question is always, what's just on your heart? Like, what is it that you really want to share? And feel free to plug about your business and what it is that you provide. (laughs) So you can do both. You can do both. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a shameless plugger of things, but I think what we've talked about, and I haven't written a lot in the last year since I've moved here, and I have sort of shied away a little bit from the vulnerability space around my eating disorder since I've been on this kind of most recent chapter. And so this, thanks to you, will definitely, I think, reignite opening up that conversation for me. So that's now very readily on my heart. In terms of what I'm doing and the stuff that's going on with behavioral science and the consultancy is that, I mean, I think the main thing for me is that it can all come together. And I think you can be all things and you can do all things. Mm -hmm. You don't need to be painted into a box, no matter what kind of facet of your life it is. You can be a consultancy, owning yogi, teacher, anorexia patient. (laughs) These are the hats that we wear. And so, I mean, it's all valid. Mm. Wow. I just love for someone who's trying to define like new facts and understanding, like the level of spaciousness that you hold for yourself (laughs) and other people. Like it takes both. Like you said, like that level of spaciousness and self-acceptance, I think will just breed like even greater analytical power and ability to like harness insights and make changes in the world and create those results. So thank you so much for being all of you. Me too. Okay, everybody, you got to share with us. You got to tell me on Instagram what you got from this episode. Do you feel like there's multiple facets of you that you now accept more? Like, please say yes. <laughs> or just tell us what you're really taking away from this really beautiful episode about behavioral science, about economics, about psychology, about eating disorders, about accepting yourself, about being able to make the life you want to live with a billion dollars if possible now. Um, If you ever want to create that, you reach out to me. I'm kind of into that. That's kind of what I do, who I am. So reach out to me and reach out to Maddie if you have any questions. And I will put all of the ways that you can reach out and connect with her and read her words and get behavioral science by her and her beautiful colleagues in the show notes. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you. It's been so good to be here with you. You're the best. Okay, everybody. I'm sending you so much love. Sat Nam.